If you'd like to turn in your Bibles uh, now to Second Timothy, Second uh, Timothy chapter three, we're continuing to look uh, at continuing to look at our series in Second Timothy, part of the pastoral epistles, uh, and we've been looking at gospel priorities that Paul lays out. Uh, for Timothy and what we can learn from that for ourselves uh, today. And we've now reached uh, chapter 3. So chapter 3, and we'll read the whole chapter together. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Jonas and Jombres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as is in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however... Know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to study again your word of truth, we ask that you will open our eyes, that we may see you, the real God, the true God, the living God, as you really are that you will open our ears, that we may hear and understand this message of your truth, and that you will open our hearts, that we might receive this message, that we might go from this place to worship you in spirit and in truth. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that uh, after all all that has taken place over this last uh, few years, in the church in Scotland and around the Western world, that things are in a bit of a mess. 
And that might be putting it lightly. However, I think that probably every generation considers its own age the worst when it looks at the problems that it encounters. And there's no getting away from it. As a society uh, in the Western world, we, uh, indeed as a church, we have uh, lost our way considerably uh, over this uh, last while. There are lots of issues we could consider, and of course the most recent one being in the events within the Church of Scotland itself, which have left us all quite disillusioned in some ways. If you're all like me, you sometimes get the impression that uh, our society couldn't actually get much worse at times. Yet I think it would be a mistake for us to look back on yesteryear uh, and wish it was like it was in the old days. Uh, For in many ways, those old days were just as bad as they are today, our times are today. It's not the first time uh, in British society that we have been morally all over the place. Uh, and that the church has been in a total mess. And it's the idea of taking a longer-term view of things that Paul will bring Timothy to as he looks, as he explains it in, in chapter 3 of his letter. As he places all the problems and the issues that Timothy was having to deal with in Ephesus in their proper context. And I think, of course, it's a lesson that we should, should help us as well as we think about all that's taking place around us as well. The changes that we see in our society, uh, the morally decadent society of the Western world. For Paul shows Timothy that really what he is experiencing with the false teaching in the church in Ephesus, with the unrest in the church, is to be expected. Because he is living in what Paul describes as the last days. That phrase, uh, as it's used in the Bible, means a period of time, or the period of time, between Christ's first coming and between his second coming. That period of time is the last days. So Timothy lived in the last days. We live in the last days. This time, none of us know how long it will be, will indeed be an age of grace and mercy. It is the age of the gospel. Uh, a gospel that is offered and proclaimed by the church to a lost world. But it will also be a time, as Paul describes it, of moral decay, of great difficulty for the church. And in particular, it will be difficult for men like Timothy who have been called into a leadership position, who have responsibility within the church. The issues that poor Timothy was facing, the heartache, the hardship... He was suffering the false teaching that was having a devastating effect on the church in Ephesus. The church Timothy was the pastor of was not somehow the fault of Timothy or due to Timothy's weaknesses or failures. Now, they may or may not have played a a part in it. But the real issue lies in the fact that Timothy was called to gospel ministry in the last days, as we are as well. Mark this says Paul in verse words in, in, in verse 1. Or in other words, sit up, pay attention. There will be terrible times in the last days. Timothy might preach and proclaim good news to this world, but he should not expect that the world around him will appreciate it or thank him for it. He needs to realize that the road ahead is not plain sailing. 
but rather will be characterized by hardship and opposition from a world that loves neither God nor his messengers. And what Timothy was experiencing in the church in Ephesus were merely symptoms of a far bigger disease. But Paul doesn't tell Timothy all this to actually discourage him. For remember, being in the last days means that the kingdom of God has come and will come fully in the future when Christ returns. It is an incredible privilege for Timothy to be part of this age. It is an incredible privilege for us to be part of this age. But just because we have this privilege, just because the kingdom has come, does not mean that we will escape the hardships or the terrible times that Paul speaks of here. Indeed, it should help us look at our age and every age with sober realism and with judgment. God is at work. God is building his kingdom. But that is not a comfortable thing. Because where God is at work, people will be shaken out of their comfortable lives and asked to live by faith alone. And that's not easy in societies like first century Ephesus. It's not easy in ours either. Especially so for those who are in leadership, who who lead by example. For as Paul continues to describe these terrible times, we find that These issues, the issues that he deals with, are not about the institutions or or the systems. Rather, the problem is with with people. And what's more, the the problem with these people is that they are bad lovers. Their affections are all wrong. And so as a result, these last days are going to be difficult for anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, as Paul will say in verse 12. In verses 2 through 4, Paul uh, begins and ends with references to what people love. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and he ends with lovers of pleasure. Apart from uh, one other reference to love in verse 3, which is a negative without love, everything else Paul mentions is a behavior which results from wrong affections. Quite simply, we can say that what these people value will dictate their behavior in regards to God and their neighbor. For as people love themselves or money, then the natural response will be a, a, boast, a boasting, a, a pride, either in their own importance or in their own possessions or material wealth or what they have accumulated for themselves. And further, abusiveness and disobedience to parents also, stems, also stem from that same poisonous stream as self-love. Not to mention that self-love and materialism produces ungratefulness and no real desire to live a holy life. And also in particular, leaves them without love, as Paul says in verse 3. That is without love for neighbor, without love for their fellow human beings. If you look at the following references, Paul makes after he says this, he mentions all the things he mentions are all to do with our relationship with others. Brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited. All to do with the way people relate to one another. Once material love or self-love take over, there is little room in people's hearts for, to love others better than they love themselves. 
And finally, Paul tells us that these people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Hedonism will displace love for the Creator. And it's this unholy trinity of self-love, material things, and pleasure that will have such a devastating effect on the society in the last days that Paul describes. It was having that effect on the society around Timothy in ancient Ephesus. And the same motivators are at work today in our society as well. This is what the terrible times will look like until Christ returns. No love for God, no love for others. Societies characterized by the pursuit and motivation of self-gain, material improvement at the expense of everything else. Societies which value enjoyment, entertainment, the pleasures of sex and society at the expense of God. You don't have to be very intelligent to see that's exactly what is and has taken place in the world around us. As people move further and further away from Christianity, there is less restraint shown on how people act. And in particular, what motivates and drives people. The ruthlessness of the business world, the pleasure-seeking of my own generation, which must be entertained at all costs and for whom the only heresy is boredom. But there's something else which makes this very uncomfortable for us all to read. And it's the simple fact that much of what Paul describes here is not only a problem in the society at large, but is a problem in the church. Paul here is not speaking just of the society which the church finds itself in. He is speaking of a church where the dividing line of where the general culture ends and the church begins is very grey and blurred indeed. Paul is not only describing a general pattern of society in the last days, but he is making a devastating critique of a church which rather than influencing the surrounding culture for the gospel, is actively absorbing the surrounding culture's desires and motives. Notice how he ends the section in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. (coughs) Now, power in this letter is all to do with power to suffer and not be ashamed of the gospel. That's what Paul had told Timothy in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. The power that Timothy received through the equipping of the Holy Spirit to stand firm, to uphold the truth of the gospel, to suffer so that it might be kept pure, unchanged and passed on faithfully to those who come after Timothy. But here Paul speaks of a a church, and in particular the leaders of the church, which to the outward eye look godly. They look and sound the part. They are involved in the right activities. They use the right words. They're impressive to look at. Yet it's only a facade, an outward form. But without the inward reality. A church or a leader who reflects the values Paul has described here will never value the cross and so will never understand or desire the love of God. And a church or a leader who has lost that has lost the need to suffer. A gospel without a cross is a gospel free of suffering because there there is no reason to suffer. 
A church which doesn't value the cross will never take up its cross and follow after Jesus. And so its love will not be towards Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, but towards a whole lot of other things. Self, materialism, pleasure, and so on. It might sing hymns. It might conduct services. It might be involved in helping the poor. It might give lots of money to charity. Yet if it's not really prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel, as Paul was calling Timothy to, to take the ridicule and the hate, to do without for the sake of others, then it's only a form of godliness and has no real power. Leaders who are active in church but display no need to repent of the behavior that Paul has described are those who have lost sight of God and the cross and the need for God's help and power to suffer for it, to stand up for it. And I think it should be a matter of self-reflection for us all, the leadership of the church, the members of the church, to consider just how much we ourselves display a form of godliness yet deny its power. How far love for material things or pleasure or, or self is leaving us cold to the love of God. How far are we prepared to go to suffer for the sake of the gospel? How far is the church in the West really prepared to go? Are we willing to live with the love of God? Peter Jensen, the uh, Archbishop of Sydney, in his book, The Revelation of God, says this, The love of God is so all-encompassing that we don't really want to live with it. Is that true of us? Paul's advice to Timothy about such people who display these characteristics could not be more definite. Have nothing to do with them. For not only do they display a manner of deceit in claiming to be what they are not, but they also are very dangerous. For they prey on those who are most vulnerable and therefore easiest to draw away from the truth of the gospel. Look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. These people are not, uh, by the way, hypothetical straw men that Paul is just pulling out of thin air and using here. Both he and Timothy would have been very well aware of what these false teachers were like and what their evangelistic strategies were. They had witnessed it. They had seen it. They target those who are vulnerable and they target those who are desperate. Paul uses the example of weak-willed women. And the point here is not about women in general. Uh, it is about specific women who are particularly vulnerable, both emotionally and spiritually. They target these people because they are desperate. They are vulnerable. And people who are like that are always wanting or always seeking something that will help them quickly. Or they are always wanting something that they think will help them. And these false teachers tell them exactly what they want to hear. But for all their learning, for all the studying that they're given, for all that they teach, they never manage to be able to acknowledge the truth. They may use the Bible, they may use Christian language, but ultimately what they teach these women never results in these poor people being able to find the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel. These false teachers, Paul uh, compares them to the two magicians 
Janus and, and Jambres, these uh, in Jewish tradition, were the two magicians in Pharaoh's court who opposed Moses. And Paul compares them to these people. They are depraved in mind. And as far as the faith that Paul understands, that Timothy understands, that the church understands, as far as that is concerned, they are rejected. But even when they are dangerous and do a lot of damage, as Timothy had witnessed in Ephesus, and Paul had witnessed over his ministry, Paul ends with a very encouraging note. For however clever and influential these people think they are, Paul tells Timothy, they will not get very far. Because, as in the case of these men, that's a reference to to Janes and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. You see, in the grand scale of things, they're up against something that they will never be able to, to destroy or to defeat. And their folly in opposing the gospel and in their failure to live a godly life uh, will be plain to everyone. They will be seen for what they really are. They were a real threat to the church. They were a real threat to Timothy uh, and the church in Ephesus. And they could do some real damage. But they would not get the last word in this spiritual battle in the last days. I think Timothy as we all should, should take great, courage, great encouragement from that. But secondly, Paul now moves uh, on to explain to Timothy how he is to cope with his ministry uh, in the last days. If it's going to be like this, what is he to do? How is he to do, what is he to do, in fact, uh, in order to continue with the truth when so many others around him in the church in Ephesus are running away and can't be bothered with it? Paul here firstly uses, uh, in verses 10 through 13, his own ministry as an example. He uses it as an example to encourage Timothy. Paul, set up, uh, Paul sets himself up in direct contrast then to the false teachers he has just described. And he does so in a way to show Timothy a pattern. A pattern that he is to follow for the last days. This is what he says. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, the kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Timothy was to follow in the example of Paul in his teaching. In his gospel that he passed on to him, as we've already read in this letter, Paul had called Timothy to guard this gospel, to make sure it was passed on to the next generation. He now calls him again to keep that same teaching. In opposition to the false teachers who were teaching a different gospel, Paul uh, tells Timothy, you stick to the gospel that I teach, that I taught. Timothy was to follow Paul's way of life, or literally his style, the way he he conducted himself as he went planting churches, growing leaders, contending with people for the gospel. How Paul preached, reasoned, and moved from house to house teaching. Again, Paul is pointing out how he is different from the false teachers in the way he does things. Timothy is to follow Paul's purpose. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. His purpose was to make known the gospel to those who hadn't heard it. 
to glorify God by spreading the news of the kingdom of God. As opposed to the self-serving ways of the false teachers, Timothy is to share in that same purpose, to do the work God has called him to do. Timothy is to follow Paul's faith. Faith that has seen Paul through his life and has kept him resolute in the face of suffering. Holding on to the hope of the gospel even when he has been through major events, major suffering. And he has seen many people turn back. Paul has remained a faithful leader. Later in chapter 4 he will actually tell Timothy a whole lot more about that. But the message to Timothy couldn't be clearer As the false teachers don't remain true to the gospel, he must, like Paul, no matter what the circumstances, continue to be faithful to Christ and his gospel. Timothy must have patience. He must have patience even in the midst of an error-ridden church, where people seem to be too easily fooled and where the disappointments are many. It would be really easy for Timothy just to forget about people who had been duped by the false teaching who had caused him disappointment. Just leave them alone. Just forget about them. But he has to be patient. He has to remember Paul's example. Paul knew what it was to be disappointed with people. And he knew what it was to be disappointed with the way things were going in general, I'm sure. After all, he writes this from prison, and a particularly nasty place it was. Unable to be out doing what he really wanted to do, preaching the gospel, planting churches, taking the gospel to other parts where other people were here. Timothy must learn to be patient. And he must love. Love even those who oppose him. So that God might grant them repentance, the repentance that leads to life. As Paul had already called him in chapter 2. He needed to be a sacrificial leader in a culture which values indulgence and self-interest. But Timothy must follow Paul and ultimately follow Christ in his example who endured the cross so that we might enjoy his heaven. And Timothy himself must endure Paul was no stranger to discouragement, but even when he went through all the things that uh, he mentions here, Paul has shown incredible courage in the face of active hostility and in the face of even losing his own life. Was Timothy willing to do the same? Was Timothy willing to go through the suffering and the persecution that Paul went through? Was he willing to be shipwrecked, spat at, Hounded out of towns, whipped, stoned, beaten? Was he willing to be imprisoned in the dungeon for the sake of the gospel? Was Timothy willing to risk the comforts of his life for the sake of the gospel? That's the big question that Paul is driving at here. He's driving at it in this whole letter. He wants to call Timothy to be prepared to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. Timothy would have well known the events which Paul describes through Antioch and all the places. Timothy was there with with Paul in many of the hard times that he went through. But was he now willing to keep going? Was he willing to keep going when he wanted to give in 
to run away when the hardship and the problems had got to this point. With all the issues that he was facing in Ephesus, with the problems in the church, was this it? Was Timothy going to go? Or was he going to remain faithful? Was Timothy willing to live that godly life in Christ Jesus and face the consequences that will come for it? When he knows full well that those who oppose him, at least in the short term, will go from bad to worse. Was he ready to follow the example laid down by his mentor, by his friend, by the apostle? Leaders and elders, are we willing to do the same? Now, we might not face the same issues that Paul and Timothy faced, but are we willing to be put out for the sake of the gospel? To love when people don't like what we have to say? To be patient with those who are difficult? Are we willing to do without for the sake of the gospel? To make sure that people at least get the chance to hear about the message of the grace of God? How much are we willing to give? How far are we willing to go? How far is too far? You can't read this. I can't read this without getting the challenge of it. You can't look at this example of Paul and not feel in some ways how comfortable and how easy we get it in the Western world. Paul has laid out a motivation and a lifestyle that is in total Opposition is totally different to the false teachers that were opposed to him and to Timothy and to the church. But which of these two motivations, which of these two lifestyles that Paul has highlighted here, his or the false teachers, which of those two most resembles our own? And finally, Paul then once more calls Timothy to step up to the mark And to continue in the truth that he has learned and has firmly believed. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know uh, those from whom you have learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. As the false teachers in Ephesus and elsewhere are continuing down a path of increased delusion and falsehood. Timothy is to continue in what he has learned and what he has firmly believed. Paul has passed on to him the gospel and he is to continue to guard it, to faithfully see it passed on to the next generation. Timothy himself knew it would be knew it to be true. He had believed it. He did believe it. So he now himself needs to continue in it and even if that means suffering for it. Paul, over the course of countless sermons, teaching sessions, church plants, has displayed for Timothy not only a message that he is to continue in, but an entire method of ministry motivated by and for the gospel that Timothy is to continue with and to continue in in Ephesus and after Paul is gone. And it's very important for Timothy to regain his confidence in that message, in that lifestyle that will go with it, Uh, so that he can be a leader in these hostile last days. When all around him are going after the latest novel ideas, the latest cool contemporary versions of the gospel, Timothy is to remain firm in what he has received and what he has believed from Paul. Paul was the apostle. 
Chapter 1, verse 1. He is the apostle to the Gentiles by the will of God. His message, his life were in service to Christ. Timothy knew that. He had seen that. He was convinced of that. And so he needed to continue with it and remain true to it. But also Timothy was very well aware that what Paul preached on all those missionary journeys and all those houses that he'd been through was always in accordance with the Holy Scriptures. Those same scriptures, which for Timothy would have, would have been the Old Testament, that are able to make him wise for salvation. Not because there is life within them or somehow they have power to give life themselves, but because those scriptures bring people to Christ, bring him to Christ who gives life. This is eternal life, says John in chapter 17 of his gospel, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's those scriptures that allow people to come to know God through Jesus Christ. And as Paul preached and taught his way through those missionary journeys, and even now with his pen in a prison cell, Timothy was all too well aware that the message of Paul was the same as the message of the scriptures. Paul preached the scriptures. Timothy had grown up with them. He had learned them from his childhood. And now he was convinced that the message of Paul taught was the message of the scriptures. That Jesus was the Christ. And that that was correct and that that was what he believed. You see, with all the problems that Timothy had faced, with all the opposition that had came uh, and, and hounded him in Ephesus, his confidence in the Bible surely would have been severely tested. After all, false teachers were using the Bible as well, no doubt. Arguing about endless genealogies, reinterpreting Bible phrases. People were getting confused. Was the Bible really able to bring people to a saving knowledge of the gospel? Was the Bible really correct? Was there something else that Timothy needed or needed to use or needed for his ministry? Could he really have confidence that these scriptures are true? Are they just stories that he learned on his mummy's knee? Or are they right? Are they true? Timothy needed to realize again that the Bible was not there to be the playground for every possible flight of fancy. But correctly handled and applied, it was God's means of leading people to Christ to be saved. And Timothy was was to continue to have confidence in them and the message they proclaim. And ultimately this confidence comes from the fact that God himself is the ultimate author of them. All scripture, which for Timothy was particularly the Old Testament, for us the whole Bible, both Old and New Testaments. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is given by the breath of God. Or as Peter would say, as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture comes from God. And because it comes with his authority... It comes from God. Timothy is to use it to teach his people. To rebuke his people from errors. To correct his people. Bring them back. And to train them. To disciple them. To show them how they might live godly lives. In short, the Bible is sufficient for him to carry out his ministry. The ministry that he has been called to in Ephesus. 
It's sufficient for him to pass on the gospel. It's sufficient for him to guard it from error and to disciple his people. Remember back to chapter 1? Paul had called Timothy to guard the good deposit by the Holy Spirit. To have a, a Holy Spirit ministry, as we called it. Well, here we're actually seeing that fleshed out a little more. Because the scriptures are the word of the Spirit. God's words. Therefore, to have a ministry empowered by the Spirit is to have a ministry that is biblical. A Bible-centered, biblical ministry. A ministry that uses the Bible correctly, seeks to teach and implement it in all aspects of life, in all aspects of its ministry. The Bible is the central focus. And so it will be a Spirit-empowered church. Verse 17 is the assurance that Timothy needs here. As he uses the Bible in teaching his people, in rebuking, correcting, and training, he himself will first of all be fully equipped for everything that God wants him to do, and so will the members of his church. In these last days with error-ridden churches, a whole host of hostile opposition, Timothy is to follow the example of Paul, be prepared to work for the gospel. He is to continue in what he has learned and has firmly believed. To have confidence in the Bible, the word of God. Allowing the God-breathed word to teach and to train both himself and his people in his church. So that in these last days, they might live godly lives and find life and salvation in Jesus Christ. And it is still the same for us. We live in these last days. We must continue to have confidence in the scriptures that they are the God-ordained means of bringing people to conversion to Christ. If this church, if the church in the United Kingdom wants again to see the Spirit move, then it needs to have confidence in the words of the Spirit to train and teach us, to equip us for what God wants us to do as leaders in the church, as members in the church, It is the Bible that must be central in all we do. It must be central in the Kirk session. It must be central in the deacon's court. It must be central in the home. It must be central everywhere. It is God's words. It is God's means to rule and govern his church. And it is our supreme confidence for our ministry to the unreached, to ourselves, to the whole church in these last days. It gives us both our message And our method of ministry. So that we, like Timothy, might continue in it and firmly believe it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you that they are powerful and effective. We thank you that they teach us. We thank you that they rebuke us. We thank you that they correct us. We thank you that they train us in righteousness. And we pray as we have heard them that you will indeed renew us where there is errors. Lord, please bring correction and truth. Lord, where there is lives which are not reflecting of the gospel, would there be conviction and repentance? Father, where there is 
failures, would there be encouragement. Father, where there is unknowns, would there be wisdom. That is what we ask. Help us, Lord, in the ministry of this church, in all its various forms and modes, to remain faithful to the truth of your word, to continue in it, to firmly believe it, and to see it passed on to those you have not heard and to those who will come after us. We thank you for the example of Timothy and of Paul. As we hear these things, Father, please give us wisdom that we might follow in their footsteps. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.